A very good evening to you. Welcome to our Wednesday evening talk. This is uh, part four of our series on the liturgical spirituality of Dom Gerard Calvi. We begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou, Monsoon, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Well, we began last week the monastic conference on man and right by Dom Gerard and we continue looking at the liturgy by looking at what we receive from the liturgy and we have in the liturgy the sense of the church. Dom Gerard explains that the instability of modern man derives in large part from the fact that he has lost his sense of community. The unstable individual, utterly turned in upon himself, needs to belong to some community, visible or invisible, if he is to continue to exist. It brings to mind the English expression, no man is an island, not even a monk, not even a hermit. What we have in mind here, of course, says Dom Gerard, is not that kind of collectivist civil society whose effect is precisely to isolate individuals in a colourless and shapeless mass of humanity. And how can we not now at times see a rather similar state of things within the church? Rather, let us turn to the church, properly considered, the church the bride and the mystical body of Christ is the most diversified, most highly structured and most extensively stratified society that exists. From top to bottom, everything in the church bears the marks of a sacred hierarchy. It stems from its living centre, the church triumphant with the celestial hierarchy of angels and the elect is our true home, and the early medieval painters depicted the whole hierarchy of creatures range in order around the Lamb, their eyes wide open, hands joined in prayer, from the great seraphim down to the souls in purgatory, preparing to ascend and take their place amid the numberless choirs. As all this takes shape in our hearts, then we begin to learn about eternity. That's the Ghent, uh, famous Ghent altarpiece from Ghent uh, Cathedral, the Adoration of the Lamb. You see the angels around the Lamb and the saints in various orders. Beautiful painting and illustrative of what Dom Gerard says here. So we have to take to heart this sort of the structure of the church, the hierarchy. There is no handbook, says Dom Gerard. No textbook explanation which can open our eyes to the Mysterium Ecclesiae, the mystery of the Church. Only the living parable of the liturgy with its ordered ceremonial can give us a sense 
of the mystery. We see that, don't we, especially at the solemn high mass, we have deacon, and deacon, the subdeacon behind the, the priest, there's a certain structure, there's a certain order, cosmic order, if you like. This is the Abbey of Beck, Helene, uh, where St. Anselm came from, as a matter of fact. And uh, Dom Gerard comments that some years ago, the abbot of, the, of, Beck, of Dubeck described how at the end of uh, High Mass, at which there were various Protestant ministers visiting, uh, one of them present exclaimed simply, I have seen the church. There's a note here that this took place um, about 30 years ago, by the time the author had written his conference during the reign of Pius XII. I have seen the church. In the liturgy we see the church. We can see, says Dom Gerard, ample reason for an exclamation of this sort in our celebration of the divine office, flowing out as it does from the altar by the mediation of the deacon in the river of light, chant, incense and sacred action to envelop the community of the faithful, themselves true actors in the liturgical drama, in the nave of the church, where the sound of the liturgy meets and marries with the soul, with the silence of the soul. Not infrequently, majestical patterned ordering of psalms and prophecies that make up the public prayer of the church will lead a straying soul to the sanctuary where the chanting of prayer will uncover for that soul the mystery of the Bride of Christ. A Jewish rabbi in the 12th century is said to have been converted to the Catholic faith, seeing that the lyricism of the synagogue was surpassed by that of the liturgy of the church and finding that the same liturgy led him without difficulty to the true fount of revelation. This is the famous abbey of Maria Lach in Germany. as a centre of the liturgical movement uh, in Germany. And one of the abbots there, Don Herbegen, uh, explained why it should be that liturgy led this Jewish rabbi to the true front of Revelation, and he says, It is in the liturgy, chiefly in the Missal and the Bravery, that Holy Scripture shines forth in the fullness of its light and speaks with all its true eloquence. The liturgy, in fact, is the lyrical voice derived from the intimate union between the two supernatural realities of Holy Scripture and the church. In the prophet Virgil, we see Mosaic there with Virgil, the Roman poet, author of the Aeneid, we find strangely prophetic passages, says Dom Gerard, which cast light on the hidden depths of history. Virgil's hero Aeneas is met by a mysterious maiden who consoles him. He only realises that she is a goddess by the way she walks as she leaves him. El vera incessu patuit dea. 
and by her way of walking she was truly revealed a goddess. That's from the Aeneid. What the church has about her of the supernatural, says Don Jura, is similar to be apprehended by her way of prayer, a thing of air and sky and heaven, which reveals her true nature even as it veils it. It's interesting that uh, Don Gerard uses classical example, and as you, I'm sure you are aware that he he cites from a whole range of sources uh, in his discussion of liturgical spirituality. Of course, the fathers of the church and the scriptures, the church itself, the magisterium, the and they've got classical sources like Virgil and historians and so forth. So he, it says, I think the conferences also say something about the man. Uh, as a monk, he was extremely well read and learned in various aspects of, yeah, I suppose, human learning. And of course, we talk about, don't we, faith and reason to come to knowledge and love of God. And by reason, we can know about God, but faith perfects reason. Um, there's things which we cannot know by reason alone, by observation. But that's an interesting parallel using Aeneas, who's only realised that this woman, this mysterious maiden, was a goddess by the way she walked. And the same way the liturgy shows us uh, something of the supernatural. It's by the church's way of prayer, which reveals her true nature, even as it veils it. So something which is veiled can reveal as well. This thought leads us to emphasise, says Dom Girard, another of the good things given to us, coming down to us from Christian antiquity. This is a feeling for beauty, inseparable in our view from the concern for doctrinal truth. So beauty and truth go together. This is something which we certainly find in the works of various uh, theologians, including Joseph Ratzinger. We may use, says um, Dom Girard, a photographic image to say that it is beauty that fixes truth. The truth of doctrine is more often betrayed by gradual insipidity of taste than by spiritual error pure and simple. The feeling for beauty is one of the consequences of our human condition, endowed as it is with a sensibility that anchors it in the very midst of the visible world. Plato said that the beautiful is the splendour of the truth. And in return, appropriately, beauty becomes the defender of that order of truth from which it springs. That is why our fathers loved beauty. And here, um, in the footnote, Dom Gérard, he cites um, the work of Henri Jalier, L'art et la pensée. Um, he said that we must rid ourselves of the illusion that truth can communicate itself fruitfully without that radiance which is natural to it and which we call beauty. 
that our affirming at least, we're writing and communicating our thoughts of consent, that the souls to whom God has confided by means of his grace the continuance of his action in the temporal order have a new liberty with beauty. Beauty then is inseparable um, from truth. It is no, no matter of astonishment that the inspired writers of the Old and New Testament, says Dom Girard, clothe their thoughts with words of such beauty. And first among these is our Lord himself. We might say the same of the fathers of the church and of the mystical writers. The words of the liturgy also obey the great law of beauty because it is the very law of creation which is, is itself the language of God. The open book of his mysteries, his garment of light. Deus amictus lumine sicut vestimento. From Psalm 103, God clothed with light as with a garment. Any man seeing about him what is graceful may see too that it bears upon it the signature of what is divine. Thus the philosopher Henri Bergson writes, A man who contemplates the world about him with the eyes of an artist will see grace shining through beauty and goodness shining through grace. Every created thing in the living movement registered by its particular form testifies to the boundless generosity of the life-giving principle. And it is not any awkward accident that leads us to use the same word, grace, both for gracefulness of movement and for that act of liberality which characterises the goodness of God. Here has St Benedict. In the book of Ecclesiasticus, we find a passage praising those who presided over the destinies of the chosen people. Let us now praise men of renown, says Ecclesiasticus, and our fathers in their generations, such as by the skill sought out musical tunes and published canticles of the scriptures. Men rich in virtue, studying beautifulness, living at peace in their, hope, in their homes, Pulcritudines studium habentes pacificantes in domibus suis, as Ecclesiasticus uh, 44, verses 1 to 6. In this text, taken from the first nocturne of, at Matins in the Benedictine office from the 13th of November, the feast of all the Benedictine saints, the disciples of St. Benedict acknowledge their own forefathers. They understand that the beauty of the prayers of the church obliges them to live with a certain style and dignity. We know of a young novice, says Dom Gerard, who confided to his father prior that without the splendours of the divine office to which he had been introduced during his novitiate, he would not have persevered. The gentle orderly influence of the liturgy as day succeeds day creates a kind of atmosphere in which what can be only called a certain spiritual and bodily deportment, a smiling seriousness, a sense of the contribution of even the smallest actions to the harmony of the whole, 
a certain way of redress of speech, of dress of speech, rather, a certain way of bending the head, all contribute to make the whole of man's life one continual liturgical act of prayer in the presence of God. We spoke about that, didn't we? I think in a recent talk about you know, divine office, uh, the, the prostration, the bending of the body, the Gloria Patri, sign of adoration and love and praise of God, and the importance of such symbolism. Paul, Paul Claudel, a Benedictine noblet, as he was, says Dovjura, has described this all-pervading atmosphere very well, that is the one continual liturgical act of prayer in the presence of God. It's splendid, and here Dovjura quotes Paul Claudel, a splendid a thing. It would be if men in general worked with each other at their common tasks, in real awareness of what they were doing, under the all-seeing eye of heaven, with an awareness of mutual help, of the ceremoniousness of cooperation with each other, of the praise offered to God by a simple raising of the eyes to heaven, of the delight of interchange with each other. There is something of all this in the Benedictine life. The life of the monk is not only chanting in choir, the returning of thanks and praise for each portion of time that is allotted to him by his Creator. There's also the ordinary round of daily life, awakening, the garden, work, the meal eaten in common, together with almost the solemnity of the Mass itself. These are, these, there are these clothes, one is washing, this lamp one lights. And these are profound symbols. The sick man cares for, one cares for rather, this visitor who rings the bell. If men in general only attended with greater awareness to the significance of what they were doing, together as they were doing it, then they would find themselves begin almost to think themselves in church and choir. How much love there really is between men without their being aware of it. And how splendid it would be if they were aware of it. The things men do without realising what they are doing, they should rather do with conscious attentiveness. And then there would be nothing profane left in the world. All would be holy, consecrated to God. Very moving passage, actually. This is from Paul Claudel's Conversation dans les lois et chers, page 102. That's Don Delat. He was the one of the abbots of um, Solem. We'll come back to him a little bit later. Um, and now the love of rule and order. Liturgical spirituality, as Dom Girard, would not be complete if one did not find the cross there as well. Certainly, it can happen that one finds oneself singing the Alleluia of Easter, mourning with a heavy heart, for the cross can make its presence felt within us at any time. The liturgy, however, proceeds inexorably, 
And it is this very inflexibility of its rule that saves those who take part in the prayer of the liturgy from their own particularity, their own imaginings, from dwelling upon their own state. And uh, here in a rather long footnote, which I'll summarise for you, Dom says that it is the rule in the theatre to bring the play to conform to those essential conditions and to elevate the action, even though it be profane, to the edge of the sacred. Thierry Molnier, in his Arsene, entitles his sixth chapter, Les Cérémonies Tragiques, the tragic ceremony. What he says here will also apply easily to the drama of the liturgy. And he quotes um, this play. Um, Racine's heroes never stoop to the vulgar, vulgar spontaneity of naturalistic gesture. They do not betray their emotions. They do not release them, other than transformed into comprehensible signs. And by this passage, through the process of thought, they are defined, ordered, made intelligible. You can read the rest of that passage yourself in the book, actually. So we continue with Dom Gerard's text. The sacrificial obedience of the man at prayer towards the rule of prayer can at first seem a heavy burden. But this submission of oneself is homage rendered to the transcendence of God. It's not to say, of course, that we can't pray about various things in such life situations, but we have to pray the prayer of the liturgy and participate in it. We have to praise and honour God, first and foremost. Um, it is truly said, says Dom Girard, that all great art demands an ascetic discipline, which at the outset, as it were, will save it from itself, from self-indulgence. And here in this section, Dom Girard really is not talking about the kind of spontaneity or so-called creativity in the literature people making literature up as they go along instead of something which has been received and something which should be done and something which should be handed on to each generation. So it's, it's truly said, as Don Gerard says, that all great art demands a set of discipline to save from self-indulgence. Um, All the more, says Don Giras, is true of Ars Orandi, the art of prayer, like, which is the queen of the arts. It will shun whatever smacks of improvisation or vulgarity. Baudelaire was right when he said that whatever is beautiful and noble derives from reason and conscious devising. Today we live in a world of unbridled romanticism, where a frenetic instability, libertarianism, devotion to notions of evolution and progress all tumble together in confusion. Against these things stands the wisdom of all the ages. It does not surprise me, writes the French philosopher Alain, 
that the church dreads change of even the slightest sort. Long experience has shown her that true peace of soul, peace of process, and hesitating prayer on the lips. And this in turn means that things are always said in the same way. And he adds this, those who say over and over to themselves a familiar text until the meaning breaks forth from, from it are the true thinkers. This is exactly what monks have done for many hundreds of years in reciting the Psalms. Today they are for changing all that, but the writer Thibault has wise words of warning for them. Put no faith in the breakers of rules who claim to speak in the name of love. Wherever the rule is broken, love too comes to nothing. You know, it's often cited in a quotation from St. Augustine. Uh, you know, love and do whatever you like, as if love is some sort of um, libertarian notion or, or, or inspiration. But then, of course, our Lord said, I'm sure this is closer to Augustine's meaning. Our Lord said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So keeping commandments and, and rubrics and love, it's all tied in. It's important to see that the rubrics are like of the liturgy, um, of the mass, they're not dead and just Um They're there to, to help us in our prayer and to help us focus and concentrate on our prayer. And our prayer consists of body and soul too, as well as words and gestures and ceremonies and rites. And it's interesting what Dom Jurel says about monks uh, reciting the Psalms. The monastic tradition, well, the Benedictine tradition is to recite all the Psalms in one week, something which Benedict says that the fathers recited each day which is quite astounding. And in the Roman bravery, um, we had, we have, rather, we have um, the same. It's only interrupted by uh, feast days, certain high-class feast days. But, yes, to pray, it's not, um, we should, one should avoid a monotony in the sense of just rattling through the prayers of the God speaks to us in our prayer. This familiarity becomes part of, these prayers become part of who we are and um, it leads our whole lives into prayer. Back to Dom Gerard. Subjection to some law is not only essential for the faithful carrying out of any human work, it is not only what protects every human enterprise against a universal natural tendency against disintegration. It is also itself an image of the eternal reality. This is why the divine work of the creation is characterised above all by order and stability. Paul Claudel, who in the forms of his poetry is among the most anarchic and unpredictable poets, speaks of this in the passage which deserves to be quoted because it expresses the idea so well. I'll just quote part of this uh, long quotation. Nature, as each new season begins, is not like some fashionable clothes designer 
racking his brains for new styles. We see him in the country, never tiring of producing the same leaf, the same rose, the same bird, the same butterfly. She feels that so great an interest, so great an importance attaches to each of the things she makes that she never ceases to repeat, each one like a child, saying over and over again a word that he has not managed to make us understand. And we see a similar phenomena where religion is concerned. Men of small and superficial spiritual understanding, heretics and modernists are forever itching to get their hands on things, to change everything so radically. The church for her part remains attached to the unchanging order of her doctrine and her ceremonies, seeing in the words of Genesis that these things are not only good, but very good. Dom Gerard talks then about the sweet attraction of heavenly things, how heavenly things can attract us. We must count it one of the blessings conferred upon us by a schooling in the ancient discipline of the liturgy that it not only persuades us to fall out of love with our own passions, but that it gives us the sweet taste for heavenly things, a thirst for God and for eternal life, more precious than any other earthly reality. For there are two things of fighting against that tumult of created things which fills the human heart. We do it by our own human efforts or by the help of God in contemplating supernatural things. These two ways, both of them good and necessary, occupy very different parts of the field of spiritual effort and give it very distinctly different colourings. The second of the two ways we call the anagogical or theological way, a way which puts impurity to flight by the force of love, by the attraction of light, by the saviour, saver of heavenly things. This says Dom Gerard corresponds to um, the first ages of Christianity, to the spirit of the liturgy and of the fathers of the church. It takes for granted the ascetic but goes beyond it. The first way, owing more as it does to the natural operation of the powers of the soul, corresponds to those ages deeply influenced by the humanism of the Renaissance. It can hardly be a matter for surprise that the spiritual life should be in some way tributary to the tendencies and informing spirit of a given civilization. From the 16th century onwards, a certain kind of naturalism makes its appearance in the recommended methods of prayer where a taste for discursive meditation and introspection dominates, together with a recourse to psychology. At this time, there begins to appear great saints and doctors of the church whose role is to evangelise the more psychological realms of the human soul seeking there the trace of the presence of Almighty God. Such was not the intention of the fathers. So here, remember, um, Dom Gerard speaking from the point of view as a monk, steeped in the fathers in scripture. Um, 
of course there are a variety of ways to pray and, and of spirituality but we should listen to what Dom Gerard says and why he's sort of arguing to get back to a way of prayer which is more which hangs more on the liturgy and of course we've seen that example in our first uh, talk um, first conference on Dom Gerard and his liturgical spirituality of concerning the prayer of the liturgy becomes our prayer and our nourishment and our fuel for private prayer and a contemplative prayer and meditation. He says that um, doubtless the struggle against self-love, idleness and sensuality require that considerable effort be allotted to clear away um, clinging and choking brambles from the path but that provided the impetus driving on to the goal. Um, what attracted one to the light was none other than the light itself. Modern man asks himself how is the struggle uh, himself, how he is to struggle against the sin of impurity. Our masters in the, the old tradition of the spiritual life are at one in their answer. By lifting up your eyes to heaven. For it is only the hope of heaven that can give man the courage to labour for it. Indeed, how important is the theological virtue of hope. Hope is, if you like, eschatological. It, it concerns the latter days, the, the, the final judgment and what have you. But we have to have hope in the mercy of God. The rule of St. Benedict, says Dom Gerard, St. Benedict's holding his rule there, in the beautiful fresco, I think it's from Subiaco. Um, the rule of St. Benedict, a rule of Christian life since the 6th century, gives a very clear illustration of what I mean, says Dom Gerard. The subject of chastity is touched lightly upon in two places, with great discretion, and this is all that he said. So in chapter 4, it's the castitate mamare, to love chastity. And in chapter um, 72, caritatem fraternitatis casti impendant. Let the monks practice a fraternal charity with chaste love. Nothing further. On the other hand, St. Benedict, in his real treats at length of the search for God, of the imitation of Christ, of prayer, of the chanting of the psalms, of the ineffable sweetness of love, and of the perfect love which casts out fear, as from the prologue of the rule. The experience of 14 centuries of monastic life inclines one to think that the best way of avoiding sin is found less in the direct effort of turning away from it than in keeping one's gaze fixed steadily on God. We do little honour to the divine light and to its power of attraction uh, if we choose some lesser focus for our energies in the fight for sanctity. That's a very useful piece of advice for us all. Keep your eye on the ball. You want to use a, a football metaphor. Uh, concentrate on the Lord. And that should envelop your whole life. Dom Romain, who was the founder and first abbot of Oncalca, 
described the high ground of the monastic life as being not the bodily mortification, which of course he practices, as he practiced, but the service of God, the coming joyfully into his presence by means of the ancient prayer of the church. And his successor, Dom Germain, gave this advice to his young monks. When you're tempted, you must use the word of God and the chanting of psalms to charm and lull yourself away from temptation, as with a child you cannot have what he wants. It has been said, says Dom Gerard, that the eyes are the barbs of hell. Are they not also the barbs of paradise? One cannot struggle against the hypnotic beauty of the flesh other than by invoking the beauty of a yet more powerful vision and one that resonates yet more profoundly within us. Claudel cries out against the moralists. What is the use of so many theories, of so much explaining, when we know instantly, in any case, that the dirt within us is at odds with the Jew? It's an interesting uh, passage. Um, the ex Exclamation of a modern man here, says Don Gerard, joins hands with the thought of the men of old. The first monks who Christianized Europe at the beginning of our era knew of the heavy dragging of the flesh and the necessity of spiritual combat. Their legendary feats of mortification at first glance seem to be what the monastic vocation is all about. But this is, but this is a uh, failure to see things in their proper perspective and so on and so forth um, we had a talk you might remember on the recent book of Pope Benedict uh, and Cardinal Sarah about the sacred priesthood and celibacy and how there was a in Pope Benedict thought there was a liturgical um, bedrock impetus, if you like, for, for the service of the priest in the Latin, right? Well, here we find the monastic spirituality, um, you know, keep your eye on the ball, keep going forward, keep saying your prayers, persevere, and a great help in all the, the struggles of life. It's interesting, he's put that here, and the reason why he said that um, about the fathers of the church, about the, the, the ancient monastics, if you like. What wholly absorbed them was not their own struggle against themselves, but the contemplation of God. A contemplation lived out in the company of their fellow monks and in the practice of liturgical prayer, where the body had a place, exercised a function. So... Then we go on, the, the contemplative life, says Dom Girard, schooled by the liturgy, achieves something that could never be done by ordinary reflexive thought. It chooses to make use of created things and with an, an exquisite tact in the choice, bread and wine, water and oil, incense and wax, and a sacred chant at the same time, sumptuous and full of humility, whose apparel of beauty itself yields to the overlordship of silence. 
It makes use of the ancient formulae of prayer, chiseled to a perfection that overcomes us, as though by the delicate beating of innumerable wings, and all this in pursuit of the love of things unseen. By a chaste attraction, the light raises up within us that which merits entrance to the heavenly kingdom, whose excellence was intuitively felt by Simon Veil, a great soul who had not crossed the threshold. And here uh, Dom Gérard cites, Reflexions sont autres sur la mort de Dieu. Those who think that there is real nourishment to be had here below, said Simon Weil, or that one day there will be, or one day there will be, are deceivers. Heavenly nourishment, by contrast, does not only make the good grow within us, but it destroys evil, the thing that our own efforts can never achieve. The amount of evil within us can only be lessened if we fix our gaze on that which is pure, without blemish. Even without their being aware of it, something will always be lacking to souls deprived of this light. And here, and that was the view of Dom Delat, who we have here, who wrote a very famous commentary on the rule of St. Benedict, uh, his abbot of Solemn. The church, Delat wrote, as received from her heavenly bridegroom, whose life she mediates and whose mission she fulfills, the sacred mode of prayer, the secret of that supernatural activity which attaches souls to God. If the Christian shies away from this life-giving government, then at once his faith loses something of its vigour and simplicity. Charity cools. Devotion becomes merely personal, narrow, petty, confined to the area of the art of artificial and private feelings, to devotional practices of little real import and to books of devotion of little standing or authority. Then we come back to Don Gerard. If one were to be asked, what is the most striking characteristic of all those which a filial and attentive spirit will uncover in the prayer of the church, then one would hesitate between the poetry of the chant, the energy and focus of the influence exercised by the sacraments, the richness and variety of the sacramentals, and of the sovereign remedy of those mysteries which imprint upon our souls the resemblance of our Redeemer. But it cannot be doubted that the character of holiness evident, even in the least important rite, the briefest formula, expresses better than all else the divine origin of the institution that we call the sacred liturgy. Thanks to its mysterious complicity with the choirs of the heavenly kingdom to which it gives access beneath the veil of faith. We are enabled to unite our voices to those of our brothers whom we do not see and beneath their gaze in suffering and in joy to serve out our apprenticeship 
to eternity. And this concludes the conference on uh, right and man, or man and right. So next time, my dear people, we'll have a look at the, the first conferences in this book, actually, the, the, the sacred liturgy. And this book is available still to buy, you can buy, for example, on Amazon. It's a great it's a great book. It has a lot to offer us in terms of understanding, the, if you like, the spirit of the liturgy. We can borrow that phrase from Karnar Ratzinger. Um, and next time we're going to look at the sections, the temple of creation. You know, there's a sort of theology of images in creation, prayer poetry, and also the approach to the heavenly temple. It's not just creation, but called to something else, to heaven. And also the, the, the subject of angels in our midst. Let us conclude this evening's talk with a prayer. and Thank God for his graces and blessings. And look forward to seeing you next week. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Glory be to the Father and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.